0: You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 245. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, so today is going to be a solo show, just me. Hey, I have a few things to talk about. And even though we have uh, a rare moment where we have some interviews in the can, you know, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, come by and tell you about uh, some cool things in probability uh, theory that uh, I am looking into and researching. And hopefully, I'll, I'll try to make it accessible. But first, hey, it's been a few weeks since we've done a news update, uh, and, and. By the way, I should acknowledge, I know this uh, episode is coming out a day late. That is because, uh, well, we had the Rosh Hashanah holiday uh, over the last couple of days, and so it was just easier to get this done after, not before, and uh, I was having a good time. Everything's good, um, but uh, hey. Wanted to give myself a little break, uh, and um, I, I realized that I wanted to do this topic justice uh, today because it was really—it's a really good topic. But a few quick updates before we get started. Uh, I know there's an election coming up. We are looking for political stories on the the midterm elections in the U.S. And usually, what we've done in the past is we've talked about some of the statistical variation in the election predictions uh, and some of the problems wrought by 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 that. And, you know, I, I think a lot, we said a lot, but um, there's a lot that can be said about it that we already said in the last two election cycles. So I'm not sure if we're going to find anything on that. We also love to talk about uh, electoral systems. if any uh, If any area is using a different type of electoral system, maybe we'll talk about that. But hey, I'm not sure. I'm sure something will come up, but I don't just want to repeat what I've done over the last couple of years. Looking into the mailbag to start out, uh, Ben writes, your episode on AI art did not mention that some Renaissance painters used the camera obscura to add perspective effects to their art. That use might be called technology-assisted art. He gave some references. So the AI art episode, that was a, a, few, a few episodes ago. That was, I believe, episode 242. Uh, let me write that down so that... Uh, that goes in the show notes page. So episode two forty two, um, the camera obscura is—it's uh, not an actual camera. It kind of looks like a camera. Uh, you kind of—you could kind of do it homemade with with some cardboard and uh, and some glass. And uh, I believe they were doing that several hundred years ago. And you could basically project light um, onto uh, onto a flat surface. Uh, so you you can sort of project the light. Uh, coming in from from an image uh, uh, somewhere else, and then you could sort of paint over that image, and so that could be an example of uh, of art that is used to um, or, or technology that is used to uh, to to create art. And it's interesting because none of this technology actually makes the artist obsolete, although some of this technology does kind of uh, change what artists can do. So for example, I would assume that um, hundreds of years ago, before there was an actual uh, a photograph camera, uh, the idea that you're going to do a painting that looks as photorealistic as possible, you're going to make this painting look as much like a photograph as possible, even though they, they don't have photographs. Uh, I feel like that would be something that, um, that, that people would want. You know, particularly a rich person might want a painting of themselves or their family uh, that that looks realistic. Once you have the the the, the, the camera available, well, well, that sort of <laughs> that, that sort of task heads to the photographers, and um, you know, the, uh, the 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 painter uh, or, or, or artist of some kind can, can focus on on other aspects of the craft. And so, I think that um, AI art is the same. It's not going to replace. Uh, artists it's not going to replace digital artists um, in well i can't say it won't replace it in them in any way, but uh, it, it won't wholesale replace the act of of digital art and so i I think that uh, I, I agree that's a good um, that's a good analogy just technology changes the art it's always been there there's always been uh, um, concerns that uh, people are going to be replaced sometimes those concerns are not um, are, are not misplaced. But uh oftentimes they're not as wholesale and complete as as you would believe. Now some people you know they believe well, AI is going to be the wholesale and complete uh, replacement of everything because we're going to have general AI uh, A, we're not there yet and uh, and B, I don't even know if that does it, but we'll see. uh secondly, we had over the last few weeks something called the Ethereum merge, which we covered in episode episode 240, we talked about Ethereum was going on proof of stake uh, and they're moving off proof of work. And, you know, I thought that there was a, because I have not, uh, you know, reviewed the code myself, I was like, okay, well, I'm a little worried, you know, could, could this go horribly wrong and, and could we see some some things fall apart? Well, so far, it seems to have gone reasonably well and it seems to be kind of a big bore which is what you want in technology. That's uh, that, that's a good thing. Um, as I talked about last time, there's also a forked corn, coin, forked corn, corn, forked coin um, from some miners of Ethereum who didn't want to stop mining Ethereum the old way uh, because they were making a lot of money off of it. So they decided to keep doing it the old way, and um, so we have a new coin. So if you own uh, one Ethereum, congratulations, you also own one. FW F, Ethereum Proof of Work. Um, the futures were fifty dollars. You know, I predicted you know there, there could be like a, a giant rush to sell, uh, but it wasn't as dramatic as previous forks of Bitcoin were. Today, it sits as only ten dollars at only ten dollars. Uh, so as expected, it's not a major player, but you know, it's approaching. I don't know, even if you can split your Ethereum and sell it, it's, it's approaching a, a 1% uh, additional return, so maybe not so bad, um, so long as you do it safely. Uh, but it does seem to exist, so I, I was thinking, you know, it's so complicated, maybe it won't exist, and who, who knows, maybe it won't uh, after a, a few months or so, or it might find some kind of use case, and it might maintain that low, that low value, uh, we'll see. The price of Ethereum has gone down in the meantime. I believe that uh, that's just part of the um, ebbs and flows of crypto. But uh, now the new supply coming into Ethereum is going to be cut uh, fairly dramatically, and presumably that's permanently. Although some say that um, it's not as permanent as as Bitcoin uh, is, because uh, you know Bitcoin with proof of work is much harder to change. Ethereum is easier to change. So, uh, but it still is a cut in supply. So I predict that a new run-up will occur sometime in the next six months. And uh, once this new supply is kind of felt by the market, and I know some people will always tell me, hey, it's, uh, you know, the the market prices it in. Um, But I don't know. I I feel like it's, um, I feel like there are other factors going into whether people are are buying it or not right now. And I I think this gets felt when all of a sudden, you know, the... um, the, new, uh, the, the newly mined coins are no longer hitting the exchanges uh, anymore. And you kind of run out and then all of a sudden people realize there isn't enough to go around and there's a big price run up. So I, I think that might happen in the next six months. Actually, I, I'm going to predict that happens in the next six months. So I, if I'm wrong, you can, uh, you can tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, but uh, but I, I really think that's going to happen. Um, okay, so I have recently been looking at the foundations of probability, in fact, I am writing a, a paper on it on, on 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 the foundations of probability theory. Uh, that is how mathematicians define probability at its most basic level so I talked. In episode 145, about the different interpretations of probability. And we've done a whole lot of episodes on it. Some people take the subjective view of probab- probability. You know, it's 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 all about beliefs. Some people take the frequentist view of probability, like it's all about the the ratios of, of counts of things that you see over time. And uh, this is less about the interpretation. Uh, and more about the, uh, the, 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 the foundational mathematics of it, the, the, the philosophy of, well, you know, how do you work with probabilities in the, max, in, in the mathematical realm? And I've come across a lot of writings to that end, uh, philosophical writings to be exact, on uh, Komolgorov's axioms of probability. So uh, let me talk a little bit about, uh, well, Komolgorov was a, a mathematician in the 20th century, early 20th century, uh, Soviet mathematician, uh, and he created uh, the kind of modern-day probability theory. He's kind of one of the big, you know, players in the field of math. I, you know, I I would have to talk to mathematicians who have a little bit more uh, uh, background in this, but I would assume if you would make a list of the top 10 uh, mathematicians in the uh, 20th century, Komogorov would certainly be on that list. Uh, so, he created a set of axioms for probability, and some of you might remember what axioms are, but I want to talk a little bit about what they are. You know, in math, they're kind of, are assumptions that are made in mathematics that help us define what we're talking about. So, you know, unlike things like uh, texts or words or even religious texts or even laws, uh, Axioms are are designed to be not open to interpretation. It's not like they come up, come down from on high, and then you're you're stuck with them. But they usually come down, and then you work within them because they've proven to be, uh, you know, they have proven to work and be consistent and be uh, and and actually define what everyone is talking about. It's so, so it's almost like an ironclad definition. Um, Based on logic, a mathematical definition, and I like to say that um, these uh, these axioms they conjure up wor- worlds. They're like uh, you know they're like incantation that conjure, conjures up spirits. You create a new set of mathematical axioms, and they might not necessarily be you know assumptions on the most basic level. Like in probability theory, it's like okay, I have a set and a function with with these types of uh, you know with these types of properties. So it's like okay, assumptions about what you have, um, but once you create that small set of rules, all this beautiful mathematics comes, comes comes out of it. So that's why I like to use the word conjure. And so you make the rules, and then the rules of the game define what playing that game is going to be like. So let's go through a few examples of axioms throughout history, because they're very interesting. The first one is, is the one that everybody is taught in grade school. It's one of the oldest examples, uh, and, and those are the axioms of Euclidean geometry. They're the axioms of Euclid for geometry. Uh, He lived around 300 BC. The axioms, of course, uh, they don't look as formal as we make them today. Like today, you know, axioms usually have, uh, you know, some symbolic logic behind it that everyone can agree on. Uh, This is, the language is a little more informal because, you know, he didn't have set theory and algebra and all that, but he would say, you know, for example, one of them is a line can be drawn between Uh, two points, Uh, and so these have been, of course, reimagined later and and formalized later, and of course, challenged, which we'll get to in a little bit. Another one of my favorites, I have three examples, well, the last one's you could guess, Uh, the second example is piano arithmetic, piano, piano, I'm not sure to pronounce him, I believe he's, uh, I believe he's Italian, Uh, this is my favorite example, it's from 1889, and it basically says, how do you construct the natural numbers, the counting numbers. So I look at it today from a computer science perspective, and I kind of look at the first two rules, and I'm like, oh, there are your constructors. There are the two rules that you need to create new numbers. Rule one, you could just start with zero. So zero you could create because there's a rule for that. There's a separate rule for that. And then the other way to create a new number is you could take an existing number and take a successor. And then there are a few rules stating making sure that, like, you don't get back to something that's equal to where you've already been, and you know you have induction, so you make sure that you know <laughs> there aren't extra numbers in there that 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 you can't reach. Um, but um, but that's essentially what piano arithmetic is. It basically, just defines the the act of counting. I mean, the act of counting sounds simple, but uh, it there there are rules to this thing, and and piano came up with them, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and another, the final example, of course, is the. Kolmogorov, Axioms for Probability. That's what we're going to talk about more today. So how are axioms created to begin with? They actually, they don't come out of thin air. They don't come, you know, Moses doesn't come down from the mountain and uh, share with you the the axioms. Uh, They usually come from many years or, you know, even generations or centuries of mathematicians working through problems a certain way. And then the people who write these axioms are... Um, you know, what I like to call the systematizers, um, which I, you know, some people, I I don't know, I I, I feel like I have a mixed view of that word. Uh, I feel like uh, every great scientist and mathematician is actually a systematizer, which is so, so it might sound like a mere kind of bureaucrat, but it's actually a really, really important thing. They write up the rules that the people were following all along. So they, they, they look at, how we solve problems, and what we do to solve problems, what problems are coming up, and then they, they write the rules that everybody is uh, already using. So it's kind of backwards than you kind of might imagine. Uh, so for example, uh, if you take the axiom, you can draw a straight line between two points. I'm sure people were using that assumption well before Euclid. He just noticed that this was one of the basic assumptions that people make in geometry. So why r- write the rules if people are already following them? Um, that's an interesting question, and I think it's like asking, well, why write a dictionary if people are already using uh, words and they're using them correctly? Or why write down laws if we already enforce laws? Because both, <laughs> both language and, and, and laws existed before, uh, before there were writing. And I think the answer is, well, first of all, you're much less likely to make mistakes if it's written down. It gives you more insights into the system we're working on. It makes sure that it's logically consistent that's really important and and if there are logical inconsistencies it gives you opportunities to uh to kind of iron those out and learn things uh and i think it's also for streamlined education it's kind of a a shortcut for uh new um people coming into whatever field that you're doing to kind of read that kind of short set of of principles um and then they don't have to kind of infer it from years and years of uh Of experience, although there are things that you 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 infer from years of years of experience anyway, but it's kind of a shortcut from experience. So if you don't like the rules, um, in the case of well, (laughs) sometimes in the case of the of the legal system, it's like we'll we'll reinterpret the the rules, reinterpret the constitution. Maybe that's not a good idea. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. But axioms usually are not reinterpreted; they're usually just rewritten entirely. So sometimes you can rewrite the rules in a way. Uh, the axioms in a way that creates a new type of mathematics. And I'll give an example in in a second. But it's not related to what you originally wanted to build sometimes. uh, Or sometimes it is related to what you originally wanted to build. And maybe the the original axioms were kind of too constricted or led to some bad consequences or something like that. So there's also something that I like to refer to a reformulation of axioms, where you come up with, uh, you're not rewriting the rules. but It's not like you don't you know, it's not like you don't like the game that you conjured up, but you just want to simplify the rules but come out with the same game. So this set of axioms and this set of axioms are basically the same exact thing. So for example, uh, in topology, uh, I've I've read a lot of books, not a lot, but a few books on topology. And topology is, we talked about topology in episode 133, Pointless Topology with Aaron. Topology is... Uh, the study, I would say, of the connectedness of space and in continuous space, unlike discrete space, it's hard to say, you know, hey, this point is connected to that point. Well, no, no, no two points are connected. You have to go through uh, infinite number of points, to get from A to B. Uh, but um, what you can do is you can talk about, OK, like this set of points, this this glob of points kind of touches this other point or this glob of points surrounds this other point. And there are different ways to kind of, uh, you know, different things that um, you can use to build the axioms of technology. One is the open set. That's the idea that, you know, this is a set that surrounds all of its members. So any member that's in the set, all of the points nearby are also in that set. Um, and then there's, there's the idea of the neighborhood where, you know, given a point, uh, another set is as, as a neighborhood if it surrounds that point completely uh hey uh, they're they're slightly different uh you know concepts but they are Uh, they can be made essentially equally. And I've read some books that literally, you know, make a set of axioms on open sets and then make another set of axioms on on neighborhoods and say, hey, these two are the same thing. We're talking about the same thing here. So isn't that nice? So that's interesting. It's actually an interesting pursuit reformulation, I believe. There's sort of an aesthetic thing to it. I kind of feel like you're rearranging the furniture of mathematics. Like what formulation of rules looks good? Uh, What is simpler? What generalize is better? All of those are great questions that uh, people ask. And by the way, I don't think, I'm hoping that there are non-mathematicians listening to this who kind of think, hey, this is this does just apply to mathematics, It applies to other things as well. I, I love doing that in this show, as you know. All right, some examples of this. One is uh, non-Euclidean geometry. So uh, as you might have remembered from school, Euclid had this one rule about parallel lines that always seemed awkward, and some folks a few hundred years ago, they wanted these nice, clean axioms, so they thought they'd try to eliminate it and prove it with the other axioms, because that's one of the things that you could do when you reformulate, is like, hey, maybe I could remove this axiom because I could uh, already prove it from the other ones. So, but uh, they weren't able to do it. Instead of doing this, they actually ended up creating a new type of geometry, or several new types Of geometry Uh, to be exact. They're all called non Euclidean geometries, and they actually turned out to have applications in physics down the line and relativity. So, really cool stuff. Um, Also explains uh, if you wanted to talk about geometry uh, on the surface of the Earth, but you didn't want to go like three dimensional, you just wanted the surface of the Earth as like a two dimensional object. You could describe that uh, as a non-Euclidean geometry, just just a different parallel postulate. So um, that that is uh, that that that's pretty interesting as well. So what am I looking at these days? I'm actually looking at the Kolmogorov axioms for probability. Kolmogorov was a, uh, like I said before, he was a Soviet mathematician from the early 20th century. A real interesting time in terms of formalizing mathematics. Uh, and these were from 1933, and since then, people have been talking about. Of, you know, almost since it was published, people have been talking about kind of reopening uh, those ideas and chal- and changing them a little bit and challenging them a little bit. And it's nothing against Komolgorov, but sometimes we want to create something a little more powerful than what we have. So I found this article that I think I've mentioned on the show before, but I haven't actually gone through it. Um, it's from a few years ago, and it's called Komolgorov and its Discontents by Aidan Lyon. And he lays out the case, uh, and I want to get into that, Uh Uh, But first, uh, let's ask, you know, I kind of ask myself, what questions should you ask if you want to open up the hood and change the basic assumptions about mathematics? And uh, to me, I I racked my brain on this. I think the first one is, what is it that you want to do that you're currently not allowed to do? Uh, Sometimes it's to make life simpler. That's one of the things that I'm looking at now with relative probability. The second is maybe there's a good reason why you're not allowed to do those things? Will there be any negative consequences? So fortunately in math, those negative consequences are either paradoxes or more difficult mathematics. And uh, I don't say uh, you know so, some mathematicians yeah, say like a paradox that's disaster. Well, <laughs> the only no one dies. The only disaster <laughs> is that you you throw it out. So it's still interesting to uh, to explore it. Uh, and the third is you know, why did the existing axiom system last so long? What is its staying power? And has anything changed? I think we're going to have to answer that question for Komolgorov as well. Uh, And by the way, mathematicians are totally allowed to work with alternative assumptions, so long as they're explicit about this. There's no Congress of mathematicians that decide on the axioms, and then everybody must follow it, you know, or face penalties. Uh, But you know, they just come to some standards over time. So there's no rush in changing it unless a certain way of doing it uh, has become more popular over time. And then, you know, the textbooks start to change, but it's a very, very, very long process. So I think the answer to that third question, what's keeping Kamal on top and what's changed? And Lyon's answer is too. I think that the axioms he came up with describe almost all situations you'd want in the real world. And the few exceptions right now, you kind of won them. You kind of one off them. You say, "Well, this this one doesn't follow Kolmogorov, but we'll we'll call it something else, and and we'll move on." And so, I think it hasn't been that much of a burden to mathematicians. Though sometimes, for example, one of the assumptions is uh, is countable additivity. If it doesn't have that, some textbooks say, "Well, that's a content uh, 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 probability, uh, not a measure probability," and. I find that wording very awkward, but you know that's um, that's. Uh, I'm sure there's a reason for that. So what's changed uh, in the last hundred years, or ninety, or 87, 80, no, ninety years, eighty nine years, nineteen thirty three. God, I got to do subtraction in my in my head. Well, it isn't obvious. Uh, well, no, it, it is obvious to me. <laughs> I, I wrote, isn't it obvious? Yeah, you know, the the, um, the last fifty years in particular you know, the late 20th century, the early 21st century, or even the mid-20th century, has brought, you know, mass computation to probability. Uh, Specifically, Bayesian probability on a scale previously unimagined. We're running a lot of algorithms to search uh, hypothesis spaces in Bayesian mathematics, you know, Markov chain Monte Carlo, and all that stuff. Uh, But, you know, you might think, and you'd be correct, that shouldn't change the principles of mathematics. The principles of mathematics are the same. Uh, it doesn't, but but if new types of problems tend to surface, you often want to rethink the foundations and kind of to reflect that, to make those problems more kind of front and center. Um, so let's get into some specifics here. What did uh, kamal have to say about probability? Uh, so he said, all right, there's this... Uh, there's something called a measurable set. And these are the things that we want to, uh, uh, these are called events, and we want these events to have probabilities. You know, they have certain properties that that we can't get into, but like the union of two events, the intersection of two events, those are also events, et cetera, et cetera. So then you have this probability function that turns an event into a number. So it sets the probability of the event between zero and one. And, um, the probability of the empty set, the empty event, you know, has to be zero, and the set of all possibilities of anything happening has to be one, uh, so that's kind of obvious. So, like, usually the uh, uh, the uh, outcome space uh, that the event uh, in, in captures, you kind of assume that one of the outcomes is going to occur, and the event is a set of those outcomes. So, it's like, are any of these outcomes going to occur, and then the probability that any outcome occurs of the whole thing uh, is going to be one. Um, So I guess there's, I guess, I I was almost thinking, well, um, what if you have a dartboard? The probability that the dart lands on the dartboard would be one because you assume that the person hits the dartboard. But maybe that's not true. Maybe our hypothesis space is the dart either hits a point on the dartboard or, it, it doesn't make it. it. It hits a point off the dartboard or it doesn't, doesn't hit at all. And so that's a separate outcome. But you would say, okay, the probability of one of those two things of any point on the dartboard or the dart not hitting, the probability of all of those would have to be one. Okay, and then the final axiom, and this is, this is the kicker. This is the one that I think usually most axiom systems, there's kind of one rule that sort of ties it all together that kind of s- puts the stake in the sand and says this is what we're talking about today so this is the additivity requirement um and that says that if you have two sets that are disjoint then their probabilities add so you know if i have um a, a dartboard with two bullseyes you know the probability of getting it in the first bullseye and and they're 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 separate so it's kind of a it almost looks like a, a pair of eyes. Imagine that. Um, the first bullseye uh, has a certain probability. The second bullseye has a certain probability. The probability that you get either of those bullseyes um, has to be the sum of those. And so that's uh, that's really important because I think that, um, I, th- I think that, Otherwise, you know what are you talking about? You're just making up numbers. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the all of the axioms before says okay. Here are the things that we're acting on, and we're 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 turning them into numbers. The numbers represent probabilities. But until you have something that ties it together, and you create some rules on those numbers, you're just making up numbers, and so you can't really interpret them very much. So this additivity requirement is is very important, and then. Uh, Kolmogorov has an even stronger, uh, makes it even stronger, and he says that if we have an infinite list of countable sets um, that that also add up, then the the union of all those sets, you know, has to be the 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 sum of that kind of infinite sum of all of the, you know, all of the parts. So in other words, if you have a if you have like a dartboard and you create like an infinite number of of squares on it, but you know each square gets smaller and smaller. So maybe it's a finite area, but if you add up the probability of each of the squares, then the, the probability of any square has to be equal to that infinite sum. So that is called countable additivity. For those of you who are not um, as uh, well versed in, in higher mathematics, that you might not have heard that before, uh, but that's like a stronger uh, a stronger requirement. So. That, you know w- w- what are the discontents that that Lyons talks about? Lyons goes into a whole bunch of different issues that people have taken with this. Uh, one issue is the issue of conditional probability. See, oftentimes you talk about, you know, what's the probability of this happening uh, given that this that happens? So, in other words, like, you know, what's the probability that my candidate uh, wins the election given that? some event occurs, you know, maybe given that the, that the, that the president in, in that candidate's party has an approval rating less than 40%, you know, or given that the uh, president has an approval rating above 50, 50%, you know, that, that could change. You know, I could, I could say, hey, I, I'm giving you more information, so your probability will change. So uh, a good example that they give is, uh, in these papers, is, okay, what's the probability that a random point on earth... Is going to be in the Western Hemisphere, and you know, because we could idealize the Earth as a sphere, we sort of assume that it, 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 it. We're, we're picking a random point on the sphere, which which you can do. Um, random uniform distribution on the sphere. We haven't talked about that distribution yet, but uh, but it'll come. Uh, so Western Hemisphere, pretty obvious. It's uh, it is uh, one half. 50% chance you're in the Western Hemisphere, 50% chance you're in the Eastern Hemisphere. If you add them together, it's 100%. What's the probability that you're on the equator? The probability that you're on the equator exactly is is a probability of zero. Uh, even though probability zero events do occur in probability theory, which is one of those really complicated things that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, I think mathematicians have trouble explaining, but yes, the probability of landing... You could land near the equator. Sure, you might have a pretty good shot of landing near the equator, but landing exactly on the equator because it's a line and it has no thickness is, is zero. So then there's the question of, okay, what is the probability of landing in the Western Hemisphere given that you landed on the equator? Well, usually in komogorov's axioms, that says, okay, well, that's the probability... That I'm in the Western Hemisphere and on the equator over the probability that I'm on the equator, and that's zero over zero, and so that's uh, you know indeterminate. But you know some people would say, well, isn't it obvious that given that you're on the equator, the probability that you're in the Western Hemisphere is also has to be fifty percent. So this is a topic that I'm currently looking at because I'm writing a, a paper on relative probability, uh, where I think that probability is kind of a, a relative affair, uh, and Uh, therefore, uh, it makes some of these other statements make sense where you're comparing two, uh, you know, two events of probability zero. I'm not the first one to talk about this. I'm going to have a little bit of a previous work section, although I don't know if I have time to review all the literature. So I am, (laughs) I'll do what I think is, is appropriate. So this is the topic, uh, that I'm currently looking at. Um, let me know what you think about it. Um, localmaxradio@gmail.com. Okay, a second thing that Lyons talks about is countable additivity. This whole infinite sum thing. You know, maybe some people say maybe we can relax that. I'm I'm among them. I think that's actually one of the more important things to relax. I'll give an example at the end of the show that I think most of you will be able to wrap your head around. But basically. Pick a random number, pick a random counting number is not allowed by these rules. You have to kind of weight things towards zero for it to make sense. So some of this countable a- additivity stuff uh, leads to some some problems, but not having countable additivity also leads to some problems. So You kind of have to work, work through that. Uh, and a third issue uh, that people have with Kamal Groves' axioms is that maybe we don't want to call the things that we're calculating... Uh, probability on as sets, like you know, Kamal specifically says that these are sets. Um, and the, the guy who brought up this issue, it wasn't some rando, it was a guy named Karl Popper, who was like ground zero for modern philosophy of science. Um, and so, y'all he says, Hey, maybe we don't have to assign a probability for everything, maybe we don't have to define the probability of A and B or assume it exists even if we have a probability for A and a probability for B. Maybe maybe the probability of B A and B doesn't exist. That one I kind of, even if you don't know the probability of A and B, uh, I feel like um, assuming it exists doesn't cause any problems, but but I'm, I'm open to hearing that, that argument. Um, and another one that, that I should mention, here's a fourth problem that, uh, or, or a fourth extension people propose, and for me this is actually one of the most exciting ones, although I have fewer ideas on, how to execute on that? On it is the idea that maybe we could use a different numbering system for probability. So we use the real number system. Real numbers are pretty well understood by mathematicians. At least we've been working with them for a long time. I do know there are some uh, uh, there are some um, detractors of the real number systems, but hey, maybe. One suggestion is maybe add infinitesimals to that. Use the surreal number system. Uh, another one is to use exotic values for probability, like imaginary numbers, using complex numbers. Uh, believe it or not, that's what con- quantum physics does. So why don't we update it in that way and, and try to make our theory of probability based on that? Um, I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but uh, it's certainly been proposed, and uh, and I'm, I'm open to learning about it because it sounds fascinating. Uh, related... I talked about this, some of this stuff with uh, Tydenae Bradley when I talked to, to her about topology in her new book uh, in episode 146. So I will link that to the show notes page. Um, and finally, at the end of the uh, paper that, that, that Lyons wrote about Kolmogorov and his discontents, he suggests that the Komolgorov axioms uh, have staying power because they're actually a good compromise between all the competing uh, demands on probability practitioners, so maybe if you're a practitioner who wants to draw outside the lines a little bit, you can define your own. Um, but uh, in general, you're going to come off, you're going to come back to Kolmogorov for like the the general use case. So that is, um, I I I think this stuff is fascinating. It really goes to the heart of showing how we really don't understand that much about probability yet, and I don't think we'll ever understand that much. But there's so much more, you know, to learn, and there's so many. Uh, you know different ways of thinking about it. That it's such a, a fascinating topic, and uh, you know I hope I hope this this stuff gave you some ideas. And you know look forward to what I have to say on relative probability in the near future. Maybe in a few weeks I'll uh, I'll I'll come out with this paper, which is going to be well over thirty pages now. I got a little carried away. <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. All right, I think we are ready. We're we're gonna stay in the uh, probability realm today, but I think we're ready for our segment. And now, now the probability distribution of the week. week. All right, the uh, today's probability distribution is the first one we've done that has a, an infinite outcome space. So the ones we've done before, like the binomial or you know the the, the categorical, is like hey there are a bunch of outcomes. There are like six outcomes, maybe, when you roll a a, a dice, a die. And maybe if you roll a pair of dice, there are uh, 11 outcomes. Um, but there's like a certain number, there's a fixed number of outcomes. And so uh, basically, we said it's, you know, for categorical distribution, it's just you know, there's you assign a number to each one, and those numbers add up to one. Those are the probabilities. Pretty straightforward. Uh, anyone can understand it. Uh, you know, you can understand. You know, um, kids in grade school can understand that pretty easily. This is the first one that has infinite support, and so the question is: I'm thinking of a number between zero and well, there's no between, but I'm thinking of a counting number: it's zero, one, two, three, four, uh, for example. Uh, and and here's an example. Um, that, that kind of a motivating example, let's suppose I'm flipping a coin and basically I keep flipping the coin until I get tails. Now, you and I both know that if it's a fair coin, I am probably not going to be sitting here all day flipping that coin. I'm not going to be flipping heads, heads, heads. Well, I might say it three times, but you know, at some point I'm going to get tails and it's going to happen pretty quickly. But, If I count the number of heads I get before I get tails, uh, that theoretically could be any number. And so the probability that you get zero heads, like you just start with tails, is a half. The probability of one is a quarter. The probability of two is an eighth, and so on and so forth. Uh, So your probabilities uh, for each count go a half, a quarter, an eighth, a sixteenth. Uh, and each value is half as likely as the previous value. And you can tell that all of these numbers add to one because, you know, a half plus a fourth plus a quarter, uh, a half plus a quarter plus an eighth plus a sixteenth, so on and so forth. Those add up to one. So that's really fortunate. Um, you can kind of, um, you can kind of, uh, it, it meets Komogorov's, uh axiom of, of countable additivity, uh, and it, it works pretty well. We could generalize this. It doesn't have to be half. Um, now, you can't, you know, start with a third. You can't say, like, okay, the first step is a third likely, and the second is a ninth likely, and then the, the next is one twenty seventh likely, and you're, you're dividing by three every time uh, because they won't add up to one. They'll, they'll add up to some smaller number, but um, you you can multiply it by some factor. So basically, you can you you can make the multiplication constant anything, any number that's less than one. And you could be like, hey, each uh, each value is a tenth as likely as the previous value. Or each likely each value is a hundredth uh, a hundredth as likely as the previous value. You know, those values will tend to be very small. Or you could go in the opposite direction. You could say, you know, hey, um, I have a certain probability for Uh, for zero. And then the the next probability is maybe 70% of that. And the the next probability is 70% of that and so on and so forth. And so this always converges. Uh, It can always be uh, normalized. It converges because something called the geometric uh, uh, series. And I mean, I, you guys can look it up, but uh, basically it has a, um, it has a formula, which is like one over. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, one over one minus r. So, uh, yeah. So that 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 makes sense. Uh, the formula for um, right a third would be one over one minus third three halves. So you'd have to multiply by three halves if you're doing if you're, uh if if your multiplier is a third. Don't worry about that right now. All, all I'm concerned with is. The next item in the sequence is a certain percentage less than the current item in the sequence, or a certain fraction of the current items in the sequence, and it's constant as you go throughout the sequence. Um, so that is the geometric distribution. It's really good for those things like, um, like coins um, and uh, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how long is it going to take me to get a head or something, get a head, to get a tail's. That's why I didn't use head, heads there, because then I said, uh, you know how long it takes me to get a, heads, a head? And then it sounds like a head, one word. But anyway, sorry. All right. The <laughs> what an aside. I think this is a good time to take a sip of water, because I am rambling. All right, hang on. So we talked about Komogorov's axioms today. How are we doing with this geometric distribution? Well, it's actually a perfect example of a distribution that meets all the Kamogorov's axioms. You know, any subset of natural numbers under the scheme can be assigned a probability. Um, interestingly, in the one-half case, you know, let's suppose you want to know, okay, wh- what's the probability that the number of heads is going to be an even number? And so zero is in, two is in, four is in, etc. If you create a binary decimal, and I know that sounds, you know, contradictory because decimal means out of 10 and binary means out of two. But what I mean is, you know, zero dot, and then you have uh, binary places to the right of the zero indicating fractions, the powers of two, Uh, then you could create kind of an infinite decimal of binary digits um, that go like, you know, uh, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero. And so that's an infinite repeating decimal and that converges to something. It converges to some number and uh, that any subset of natural numbers uh, can be assigned a probability in that way. So really fascinating. And then, of course, you have countable additivity. So I talked about breaking the komogorov axioms. Why did I give an example of a distribution that meets the komogorov axiom? Well, there's a catch here. Suppose that you want to create a geometric distribution that isn't so weighted toward the low numbers. So you pick a multiplier that's really close to 1. So let's say you want whatever the probability of, of, of N is, you want the probability of N plus 1 to be, say, 99.99% of N. So, you know, the likelihood of 10 looks very much the same as the likelihood of 11. You probably wouldn't, yeah, you'd prefer 10 slightly, but, you know, they're going to look very much the same. Uh, and it takes a long time before you see a dip in probability. So even at 99.99%, you know, the probability of 1,000 a, a is ninety percent, which is still maintained a lot of its value, as compared, for example, to the coin flipping, where you know you'll never get to a thousand. I mean, theoretically, it could, but but never. So, um, although it does drop fast, because then at a million, it's down to zero. But you could keep adding adding nines. You could say ninety nine point nine 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 nine. But let's say you want that to approach hundred percent, and you want each number to be exactly equal to the previous number. Uh, well, first of all. There's a lot that can be said about that distribution, which I will, you know, in the future, where doesn't it create values that are too high? By too high, I mean like unbelievably higher because than, than anything you could imagine. Um, so when you let that approach 100%, that leads to another distribution, or what I call distribution. It's called the fair countable lottery, which I won't get into today. We'll get into another time, but it is going to cause problems for Komogorov's axioms, because it's not countably additive, and yet we informally use it all the time. Uh, you know, you, 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 uh, at least it's an approximation to what we're doing. You know, We at least say, hey, let's just assume that all numbers are equally likely, even though we know that's, that's probably not, not you know, physically feasible. So the geometric distribution, simple, elegant, unbelievably useful, plays by all of the rules, But even on its own terms, we find lurking in the corner, lurking in the limit, something that doesn't quite sit right. Uh, So we'll talk about that another time. Keep listening to Local Maximum. Next week, I have uh, another crowd pleaser of an interview on Local Maximum. We're going to interview A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a book called The Puzzler. And some of you are probably, uh, I actually have talked to some listeners. People are a lot more familiar with A.J. Jacobs than I I thought. He wrote a whole book on the history of puzzles and different types of riddles and crosswords and and solving them and and why people do it. And uh, we had a really great conversation on that. So make sure you tune in to The Local Maximum next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show.